Amen. What a beautiful song. Uh, my chains are gone. I've been set free. Beautiful hymns. On average, each year, 55 million people died uh, in the world. And that is roughly about 1.8 people per second. So, two, four, six, eight, ten. Ten people have just died in the space of five seconds. And in Australia, about 435 people die every day. So by the end of today, 435 people will die. And we all know that death is inevitable for all of us, whether you live to the ripe old age of 100 years old, or it could be just a few hours here on earth, but death is inevitable. Someone said that the, uh, you are in a pro- living is in the process of dying, in a sense. And death is not just only inevitable, it is also impartial. It is no respecter of persons. Whether you are young, old, rich, poor, powerful, powerless, whether you have any title in front of your name or how, much, how many zero you have in your bank account, uh, death is impartial. doesn't matter who. Death is also often uh, unexpected. Uh, death often takes us by surprise. Today you can have lunch with this person, tomorrow that person may be gone. Uh, you may just uh, see the person this morning, by the end of the day the person may be gone. And there was a story about a man who was trying to trace his family origin. And in the process of his research, he visited several cemeteries, collecting information from the markers. And at one place, he came across a monument uh, with the following inscription. Pause, now stranger, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so soon you'll be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And then next to the marker, he noticed someone had placed a board with the following words. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. And the passage that I'm about to read to you, three men were on the cross. Three men died on that day. One man died concerned, very concerned. He said, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. He was very concerned. And the second man, he died comforted because he said something and then Jesus replied him by saying, today you will be with me in paradise. So he died comforted to know that he will be with Jesus in paradise. And the third man in the middle, of course, Jesus, he conquered death. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The first man died concerned, the second man died comforted, and the third man, he conquered death. So would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 23. I want to read this familiar passage to you. Uh, Usually we read through that in uh, Easter season. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 32, right down to 43. And you can pick up this three men. Verse 32 to 43. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. 
Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and then they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a beautiful, comforting words, isn't it? We can always learn the lessons from a thief. Usually it's what not to do. But in this case, this particular thief teaches us four lessons that I want to give to you that I think is worthwhile following if we want to hear those words someday for ourselves. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Someone said that the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. And the worst of life is a glimpse of hell. And for Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. And for unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. John McCarter, a famous popular teacher in America, says, Scripture repeatedly makes clear that heaven is a realm of unsurpassed joy, unfading glory, undiminished bliss, unlimited delights, and unending pleasures. Nothing about it can possibly be boring or humdrum. <clears throat> it will be a perfect existence. We will have unbroken fellowship with all heaven's inhabitants. Life there will be devoid of any sorrows, any cares, any tear, any fears, or any pain. That is heaven. And this man, the second thief, who spoke to Jesus, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
I want to give you four lessons that I think we all can learn from this particular thief who found his destiny in the future. If you believe in life after death, then you must know where you will be heading, our destiny. So the first thing that I want to give to you that I think that we can learn from this particular thief is he fears God. He fears God. Look at verse 39 and 40. The first thief said, one of the criminals who hung there, he hurled insults at him. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that the first thief hurled insult, and the second thief seems to uh, was rather repentant in a sense. But if you read Matthew gospel and Mark gospel, both of them actually hurled at Jesus. Both of them actually uh, hurled insults at Jesus. Not just only the first thief, but for some reason, for some reason, while the second thief was on the cross, something causes him to change. Something turned him around. He no longer hurled insult at Jesus when he initially did according to Mark and Matthew gospel because he said both of them, the criminals and robbers, both of them hurled insult. Or the, the, those who were crucified with Jesus hurled insult. And for some reason, we do know what happened to this second thief. He suddenly turned around and he actually didn't hurl insult anymore. Instead, he rebuked the first thief. He said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? Don't you fear God? So the first thing that we can learn from this second thief is that he fears God. God. He had suddenly had a healthy fear of God that stopped him from mocking Christ. And he said, don't you fear God. And I think this is the first step that will lead a person's heart towards salvation. And that is a healthy fear of God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, or many places in the book of Psalms, say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. We don't take enough time to meditate on that verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you, you are considered wise if you, have an unhealthy, if you have a healthy fear of God. You're considered wise. It doesn't matter whether you have education, doesn't matter what status you have. So long as you have a healthy fear of God, you are considered wise. You have wisdom because you see life in a proper perspective and you will know how to orientate and live according to what, what God's Word says. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Many people encounter Christ. Many people not heard of Jesus. But at some point in their life, they're beginning to have a real encounter with Jesus Christ. Many young people go to church when they were young or when they brought up in a Christian family, but at some point in their life, they have a personal encounter with Christ. And I, and I believe that this man, whatever life he has been living, he's, he's considered robbers, he's considered criminals. Both uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke Gospel describe them in these terms. And why they were on the cross, we will never know. Uh, but it has been said that crucifixion only reserved for some very... Uh, very, very hideous type of crime, like insurrection or, or treason. But we don't know what these two thieves had done. All that we have was they were described as robbers 
and they were described as criminals. And at some point at the cross, even until the day of His death on the cross, He must have watched Jesus, how He responded. He breathed the prayer of forgive them for they do not know what they do. Maybe something must have struck Him and then at that moment was His moment of recognizing His life on earth that is coming to an end. Uh, Helmut Tillich says that only those who take Him seriously will discover Jesus at all. Only those who take Jesus seriously will discover Him at all. You remember the story in Luke chapter 5 about Peter's. And Jesus came and healed his mother-in-law. And then after that, Jesus said, can I borrow your boat to go out fishing? But, but Peter said, well, we've been fishing all night. And you, did you know that that is actually quite an insult to a professional fisherman? They've been fishing all night and no fish. They caught nothing. And Jesus came along and said, come, let's go fishing. He said, I've been fishing all night. There's no fish. I'm a professional fisherman. I know. But Jesus said, let's go. And did you know that on that en uh, encounter, when they caught so much fish, you know what Jesus what Peter did? Peter suddenly recognized who Jesus was for the first time. Not the miracle of uh, healing his mother-in-law, but at that moment, he witnessed it himself. He bowed down and said, depart from me. That was his encounter. That was his encounter. Maybe his starting point is as a healthy fear of God. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5 say, I tell you, my friends, Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear, Jesus said. Fear him after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Don't fear external. Don't, don't have to fear anyone. The problem is many of us, we fear people, but we don't fear God. But Christians are always asked to fear God and don't have to fear anybody else in the sense. There are too many people who live their life in fear of the wrong things. Do you know that it was His mercy that woke you up this morning? Because His judgment should have killed you last night. It is His mercy. God's mercy. Every day I wake up, I say, God, thank you for another day you have given to me. I have this day to live for you. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. I have today. I want to honor you and I want to serve you. So the first thing we can learn from the thief, if we want the sentence that Jesus breathed and said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, is to have a healthy fear of God and recognizing who God is. The second thing that I think we can learn from the thief is in verse 41. And that is, he admits wrong and he accepts justice. He admits wrong and he accepts justice. It's so difficult to admit wrong, isn't it, nowadays? Here it says, let me read 40 to you again, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. So he saw his own guilt, and at the same time, he saw the innocence of Christ. He admits wrong, and he accepts justice. He said, we are punished justly. You know, we, we deserve it. 
for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. He saw his own guilt, and at the same time, he saw the innocence of Christ. This is also something that a person must come to a realization if in order to bring Christ into their heart. They must see their own guilt and know that they are a sinner. You and I, we are sinners. I know it's not a popular word. The word sin no longer exists nowadays. We use mistakes. Let us confess our mistakes to the Lord. Sin no longer uh, exists. We are, we are not only sinners, we are often self-deceived. We do not see ourselves accurately. Every one of us thinks more of himself than he ought. We are in desperate need of people pointing out to us. And more importantly, I think we need to be the kind of people who acknowledge that truth, that I need the grace of God. doesn't matter who, from the Scripture, you look at the Scripture from Abraham to David to Solomon to Peter to James to John to St. Paul. All these people recorded in the Scripture they are sinners. They know they are sinners. They know they are fallen short of the glory of God. They are born with the same human nature that you and I were born with. In fact, a Reformed scholar, scholar R.C. Sproul, he has uh, even a stronger words. He said, if you really, really think about it, we are really more like Adolf Hitler than like Jesus Christ. Because God's standard is far too high. And when that standard is used as a measurement, whether we are good or bad, we will forever fall short of that glory. And this man, he knew. This man, he admits wrong and he accepts justice. He said, Lord, he rebuked the other man and said, well, we, we are here, we deserve it. But this man, he had done nothing wrong. Did you know that nowhere in the New Testament that we often hear people say frequently, nowhere in the New Testament will you find that salvation is by accepting Jesus. Nowhere are you called to accept Jesus. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find that salvation is by asking Jesus into your heart. Nowhere in the New Testament that we are told to ask Jesus into your heart. It is not there. You know what the Bible says often? What you are told again and again in the Scripture is to repent and believe. Because that is a deliberate action on your part, to repent, to acknowledge. Like this thief admits wrong, admits that we are sinful and accepts justice from God. And then when we know that Jesus came and delivered us, saved us, be our Saviour, that will become a beautiful, wonderful, good news. He admits wrong and he accepts justice. Third thing that I want to uh, give to you that I believe that we can learn from this thief, not just only that he fears God, not just only he admits wrong and he accepts justice, thirdly, he actually pleads for help. He pleads for help. Look at verse 42. He said to Jesus, after he fears God, after he rebuked the first thief, 
and then he, he acknowledged that he is a sinner, he, he deserves it, and then he pleads for help in verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. From that one statement, it tells us this thing. He had faith that death wasn't the end and that Christ had a kingdom. In other words, if you have a kingdom, it means you are the king. He believed, he had that faith at the final moment of his life that death wasn't the end. Death is not the end. Death is, as Rick Warren said, death is not the termination of life. Death is a transition into eternity. Not termination of life, but transition into eternity. What is so incredible, I think, is that the disciples and the followers of Jesus thought that their hope was dashed when Jesus died on the cross. Everybody left Jesus, only John and Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene, only three of them were under the foot of the cross. The rest all ran away because they thought their, their hope was completely dashed, finished. In their despair and fear, they abandoned Christ. They thought that Jesus was going to set up His kingdom on earth, but now Jesus is dying. <laughs> you know, that's it. But the criminal on the cross, the thief, the robber, he pleaded for help. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed that there is life after death. He knew that even though Christ was on the cross, he just knew that it wasn't the end for Jesus. He knew there was something beyond this life. And he knew that Christ would have his own kingdom because he seemed to be so sure of his time when he was on the cross. Who would have ever thought that a common criminal would have more faith than the disciples who were taught at the feet of Jesus for three years? And Jesus even tried to tell them from the death that he would face and what must happen. And they still thought it was all over. But yet this man, he had never received the teaching and training the disciples had. Yet he had a faith that was pure, that was so unadulterated. You know, sometimes we are like that too. A new believer experienced Christ. They have greater faith than people who have been in the faith for many years because they are so locked up and fail to nurture their life based on walking in the Spirit, so much of the flesh. And they become very limited in their vision, in a sense. And therefore, we are put to shame in a sense. There is life after death. Jesus said that very clearly in John 14, verse 1 to 3, that has brings tremendous of comfort to many, many people. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I will take you to be with me that you also 
may be where I am. Remember, these words were spoken is what they call the farewell discourse, the final night of Jesus with His disciples. Jesus said that to them. And yet, it doesn't register. It doesn't register. Because it only settles on the mind. It doesn't sink into the heart. And truth is the truth when it descends into your heart. That's why they say the longest distance in the world is from your brain here to your heart. Many things in life uh, are not truly learned in a sense or experienced because it only settles on your head. It never sinks it into your heart. You have not personally experienced that before in your life. Truth is not true until it sinks into your heart and then you experience it and you believe it and you live by it. And that will become life-defining moment for, for you in a sense. And so Jesus told them, uh, in the farewell discourse, on the final night, and despite of all that, it doesn't register. And yet, yet this criminal, this thief, this robber, at the mo- on the cross, he believes it. He said, Jesus, he pleaded for help. Jesus, please remember me when you come into the kingdom. Please do. So, third things we can learn from uh, a thief is that, uh, that he fears God, he admits wrong, and he accepts justice, he pleads for help. We need to plead for help. We need to desperately come before Jesus and know that He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And the fourth thing that I think we can learn from the thief, before I come to explain uh, Jesus' response to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. The fourth thing I think we can learn from the thief is he knows it's never too late. He knows it's never too late. This was a man who most likely had not lived his life for God. He was a criminal, he was a robber, he was a thief. He was a person who violated other people by taking their property or whatever. And here he was at the last hours of his life and he turned to Christ. Jesus didn't say, well, I wish you would have turned to me earlier. I could have maybe done something for you. Jesus didn't say that. He saw the genuineness in his heart and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that is a wonderful encouragement to all of us that it's never too late. There is, I believe, okay? I know some people don't believe, I believe there is a, such a thing called last minute salvation. I believe. I believe with all my heart. Of course, of course, uh, if you read Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, there's a chapter there called Loophole of Grace. Well, if you have that kind of knowledge, you can live whatever you want to live. Just before I die, I say, Jesus, come to my heart, and then I'm um, automatically gain entry into heaven. There's a loophole of grace, in a sense. If, if people know this kind of thing, oh, last minute I can do that. But let me just say this, you don't know when you die. Do you know? You don't know. And God knows your heart anyway. God is the, the true judge. And in the story of uh, um, the parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew chapter 20, the first person who started work at early morning at 6 o'clock and the last person who work, only worked for one hour, their reward is the same. While we may cry foul, we may cry injustice, we may cry that it's not fair, 
But the parable clearly spells out that the master said to those who started work at 6 o'clock, I promise you I'll give you denarii, one denarii. And at the end of the day, I give you one denarii. If I want to give to the last person who only worked for one hour for a denarii, what is it to you? You are angry, you are upset because I'm generous. You are upset, you're angry because of my generosity, but I have never shortchanged you. I promise you one denarii and I gave you one denarii. I did not shortchange you. So God's grace is enormous. We can never comprehend. But we should not be upset if God is generous. Because God is fair to us. He gives to what He promised to us. If He extends grace to others, it's because of His generosity, His generous heart. Isn't Second Peter talks about that also? He's not returning soon. He's patient because He doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want any to perish. And Jesus simply said to this person whose final moment of his life, who pleaded for help, he knew that he, he, he is never too late in a sense. And Jesus knew that he was sincere. And Jesus simply just replied to him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. William Barclay, a uh, commentator, said, For the Christian, heaven is where Jesus is. We do not need to speculate on what heaven will be like. It is enough to know that we will be forever with Him. And that is sufficient. Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. When life is finished on this earth, our bodies will go into the ground, as we often hear pastors saying, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We came from dust and we returned to dust. And when life is finished on this earth, our bodies will go to the ground. But I believe this says to us without a doubt that our souls will go to be with Christ right away. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say anything about the future. He simply said, today, you will be with me in paradise. You just use the word paradise. Paradise only appeared three times in the New Testament. And uh, the word Jesus used here, paradise, to describe heaven is rather rare in the Bible. It is actually a Persian word meaning enclosure or park or garden. And our text offers the first time this word appears in the Bible. Today you will be with me in paradise. It has been said that when a Persian king wished to do uh, one of the subjects a very special honor, <clears throat> he made him a companion of the garden, which meant he was chosen to walk in the garden with the king. That very day, this thief was treated to a special walk in the garden with Christ. So that's the first time the word paradise appears in the New Testament. And the second time it appears in 2 Corinthians 12, which is quite familiar to some of us, where Paul said that he was caught up into heaven in verse 3 and 4. Uh, Paul talking about an out-of-the-body experience that transported him up to a place he called the third heaven. He said this in verse 3 and 4, And I know that this man, whether in the, in the body, this man is referring to himself, he's using the third person. He said, And I know that this man, which is himself, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. 
And he went on to say that because he has such surpassing, amazing, great experience with God, and, and to keep him from being conceited, to keep him from falling away, therefore God allowed a thorn in his flesh so as to keep him on the right path. So the thorn in the flesh is to help him to stay on the right path with God because he has such amazing encounter with Jesus. He has been shown inexpressible things. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. And God said, well, I, I, I need something to make you finish well, in a sense, by giving you a thorn in your flesh. It gives us a whole new perspective to our trials and pain in our lives. And the third and final occurrence of the word paradise is in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 7 where John's vision is described in awe-inspiring detail. Again, it is Jesus who used this word when He promised. This is in chapter 2, verse 7 of Revelation. To Him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The reference to the tree of life in the paradise of God provides an important clue, isn't it? Because paradise is not just any kind of garden or enclosure. It is the sinless, witless, and painless garden of Eden that is described in the first pages of the Bible. So this is what Jesus promised the criminal after his death. This is how we may picture heaven and eternal life. We are not destined for some kind of misty, disembodied experience in some faraway galaxy. Instead, we are destined to live and work and play and find community with our Creator and our fellow creatures in a place of great beauty filled with colour and sound and life and meaningful activity. What will heaven be like? It will be like the Garden of Eden before the fall of sin. Perfect. It's worthwhile repeating what John MacArthur said again. Scripture repeatedly makes clear that heaven is a realm of unsurpassed joy, unfading glory, undiminished bliss, unlimited delights, and unending pleasures. Nothing about it can possibly be boring or humdrum. It will be a perfect existence. We will have unbroken fellowship with all heaven's inhabitants. Life there will be devoid of any sorrows, any cares, any tears, any fears, or any pain. And I think no one has captured what heaven will be like as well as C.S. Lewis in the book Chronicle of Nadia. And he takes the cue from the paradise in Isaiah chapter 11 where the predators and prey living together in perfect harmony in Isaiah chapter 11. Let me just read to you a few verses in Isaiah chapter 11, verse uh, 6. He said, In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling, which is one or two-year-old horse, will be saved with the lion. And the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. 
the cup and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put his hand in a nest of deadly snakes and without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And Louis, using this imagery, he imagined a magical place where he called Narnia, heaven, Louis suggested, a gloriously beautiful and exciting place of unlimited adventure and unlimited security where you can swim up waterfalls and play with wild animals without ever being afraid. Heaven is a place of reunion with the people you love to see and get to know. A place where good things never end and each adventure is better than the one before. Heaven is a place where every creature is the prime, is in the prime of life. In the best possible physical shape and free from the constraints of times and the bondage of sin. Wow. No more arthritis. No more pain in your joints and, and whatnot. Everything will be perfect. A place called paradise is what Jesus promised the criminal on the cross. There's one more question I need to answer. And that is when a person dies, where does he go and when does he get there? It's a big topic, but I just want to just take this verse as it is. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't believe in soul sleep. I don't believe in purgatory. I believe that when you die, you will be with Jesus immediately. But we live in a time-bound earth. We cannot imagine that. We have tomorrow. We have uh, seconds, minutes, hours day, week, year. We are chronologically wired in the sand because we live in this fallen world. But time ceases to exist when we die. And therefore, Jesus can say in Peter, one day is like, like a thousand years because time ceases to exist. We are time-bound. Maybe the time that we die and that moment is the same moment when Christ returned. Time cease to exist. Time is a human construct, a linear experience of seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, and years. Eternity, on the other hand, is a divine experience, a constant living in the now that holds past, present, and future in the same moment because time ceases to exist when we enter into eternity. I believe when a Christian dies, he enters eternity and immediately arrives at a moment where Jesus is coming and paradise is restored. The believer who dies in the Lord instantly arrives there. Here you go. Don't you want to take a special walk in the garden with Jesus? This morning, I pray that you realize your guilt and you can see the innocence of Christ. I pray that you have faith that death isn't the end and Christ indeed has a kingdom 
I pray that you realize it's never too late for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what consequences you're suffering, uh, it's not too late for you. Take it from the teeth. It's never too late. C.S. Lewis said, you can't go back and change the beginning. But you can start where you are and change the ending. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change your ending. God, God is the producer. The Holy Spirit is the director. And I think I'm a horrible actor. But we all should thank Jesus because He is the editor. Thank God for His amazing grace. Let me close with this. A number of years ago, when I was still in my old church, there was a lady rang me up. And she said to me, Pastor, can I bring a young man to see you in his university? I said, could you provide me some context? She said, it's too complex to explain to you. You just find it out from him. But he des- I desperately need to bring this young boy, boy to see you. I said, all right, come over. It came about 5 p.m. And I opened the door. I have never seen a young man that trembled and so much. He literally is trembling. And she, she, we went to our lounge room and spent some time while she went and spent time with my wife so that I can spend some quiet moment with this boy. He was, throughout the time, sitting across me, his hand was shaking. And I asked him, what happened? Tell me. He said, Pastor, I'm an overseas student from Singapore. And our exam just over. And so we live in a house, the four of us, myself from Singapore, another two from Indonesia, and another one from Korea. Uh, and we finished the exam. They decided to drive to Great Ocean Road, which all tourists want to go there. And he said, for some reason, I'm just so tired, I, I don't want to go. I just want to take a bit of time and sleep and catch up and all that. And so the three of them went. And they met an accident, and all three of them died. He said, Pastor, I cannot tell you. I'm not saying I'm happy that I, I escaped death. I'm not saying that. He said, I'm now so fearful. Suddenly, I'm sitting in this house empty by myself and the laughter of my three friends in their room, their computer is still there, their book's still there, their clothes are still hanging on the, there and they're all gone. They're all gone. And he started to break down and he shiver and, and trembling so, so badly. And I don't know what to do, he said. He said, I grew up in church but I've never taken my faith seriously. I, I suddenly, this thing jolted me out of my comfort zone. And then we prayed together. He rededicated his life to the Lord because for once, death was imminent and he escaped the death and it gives him a new light, new sight, new understanding of what living is all about. And even when you die, Jesus' words is comforting to us. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Shall we pray? Lord, I wondered too much about what heaven is like. I wonder where it is.
I wonder what we would do. I wonder whether it would be fun and I worry that it might be boring. I wonder what we would wear, what we would eat, what we would do, where we would live. I, I wonder whether we would recognize people in their new bodies. And I often wonder what those new bodies will actually look like. What will the climate be like? Will the landscape be rural or urban? How will we get around? How high will we, will we be able to jump? And how fast will we be able to run? Will those of us who marry still be partners in some kind of celestial way that surpasses marriage as we know it? Will we hang around with angels and eat with Jesus? Will there be animals? Will there be beloved, our beloved family pets who have died? Will there be seniors and babies and middle-aged people or will we all be the same age? Will we see God face to face and what will He look like? Will all our questions finally be answered? Lord, there are millions and thousands of questions I do not know. And in some sense, Scripture is silent. And I know when Scripture is silent, it means it's not necessary for us to know. It's just enough to be with Jesus. It was a thrilling moment for that thief. It was a thrilling moment because his destiny is secured. Today, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. Dear Lord, I pray for whoever is watching this morning who will be listening to these words that you said on the cross. I pray it will be their destiny. It will be their experience. By fearing you, acknowledging you, pleading for help, repent, and believe, and you will say, today, you will be with me in paradise. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We worship you. We love you, Lord. And we live for you here on earth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional and unfailing love of God, and the amazing presence empowering Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.